Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, what's going on? I am Samson Jagoris, founder of Growth View Properties, a multifamily investment syndication group. And if you want to learn more about how to invest in your relationships, then you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Chappell and Eric Swarzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Samson, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here and talk about networking. It's something that I think is crucial to every single professional, and it's a big part of um, what I do on a daily basis. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, right before we hit record, uh, you know, that was one of the things I was saying is that it's, it's kind of vital for what it is that you do, uh, working in the, uh, in the investment space and, and all the different connections that come tied into it. It's really one of the places where I think networking might be most important is in the field that you're in. Uh, but before we talk about what you're doing now, I, I like to take these conversations back to the beginning. Uh, tell me about when you first got the bug to get into this world of investing and when you first had your eyes open to this being even a possible route for you to take. Man, I grew up in a blue collar household and uh, the way that I learned to make money was you just put your head down and you grind, right? And you 
you slug it out. You know, my dad's a carpenter and uh, he's been a contractor. He's been doing woodworking since he was about 13 years old. And so he knew no other way because he raised himself. I mean, when he was 13, his mom passed away and his dad effectively walked out. So he had to figure it out. And he did by lying about his age and getting a job. So he just knew like you grind, you work hard, you do the right thing and, and everything will work out. So I definitely had a work ethic instilled in me at a really young age. Um, I played a lot of sports, grew up skating. And um, when I was about 14 years old, I found football. Hmm. And so football training, human physiology, those things kind of go hand in hand. And so when I got to college, I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was really focused on getting a degree in physiology as I went down the route, trying to play uh, division one football and maintain the grades necessary to get into medical school. I wasn't the best student. Let's just put it that way. And I'm actually really thankful for that because as I approached my senior year, I was thinking about what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to go into more like commercial, commercial fitness um, or the route of collegiate strength and conditioning. And then one day my father-in-law says to me, I think he could be pretty good uh, broker, stock broker. Mm. And I was like, I don't know anything about this. You know, he's like, I didn't even go to college. Mm. You know, he's like, you have to pass your, your series. We were doing futures trading. So futures and commodities, you got to pass your series three, but you know, you have all the intangible qualities, humble, hungry, smart, gritty, competitive. I can't teach you any of those things. I can teach you how to sell and I can teach you how to trade and be a great broker. Um, but the intangible skill sets, you just, you have that. So just trust me and I'll show you the way. So that was my introduction. I graduated on a Friday with a degree in human physiology. I walked into a futures and commodities brokerage on a Monday, three months later, I was a newly crowned broker in September 29th, 2008, the Dow Jones fell 777 points, which officially set off the economic housing crisis. Wow. And so I would got baptized in the deep end. I was in the fire, but when you're you know, 23 years old, 24 years old, you literally have nothing, nothing to lose, man, what a good time to get started and to get baptized in that world. So I saw a lot of people make a ton of money and I saw a lot of people lose their butts. And uh, I started learning about the power of just risk management and the power of just long-term investing and assets. You know, my customers that consistently made money were the ones that were actually using the market to hedge. They were cattle farmers, they were corn farmers, they were oil producers, gold sellers. The people who constantly got their butt kicked were people who were just speculating on price. And so obviously coming from a background where your dad builds you know, custom homes and things like that. So real estate just kind of made sense. Hmm. I didn't really know how to like get over that hump. But after four years of being a futures and commodities broker, got really exhausted. We were doing a lot of managed money and sleeping with a laptop next to your bed. Those things kind of wear you out and you're constantly watching the markets. You can't get away from it. So I was going to leave and go be a financial planner. Didn't do that. Ended up taking a gig to run a strategy and business development. So spent a lot of years in technology. Um, but along the way, I started building my real estate portfolio hmm. and just, I just love the thrill of the deal and putting it together and finding the money and doing all that stuff. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by people who got started before the crash um, because it, obviously, like you said, you you kind of went in right at the moment that everything fell apart. And it, it seems like in that moment, there's one of two people. There's the people that are going to say, I should have listened to the people that said this was too risky and go get my nine to five somewhere and, and try to knock that out. Um, and then there's the other people that stick around and ride the wave back up. Was there any part of you that questioned 
should I be doing this? Did I make a huge mistake? Uh, or was it something where from the get-go you said, I'm going to ride this out and let it go back to where it was? I think if maybe I'd gotten started sooner. So I had enough time to really like build a portfolio <laughs> and lose some stuff. I might've felt differently. Um, but in the middle of a economic downturn and a recession is actually the best time to start any business, you know, 2020, I think there's been more businesses started than, you know, anytime in the last 12 years. And so, yeah, I, I don't think I would have changed it or, or traded it or done anything different. I think what it taught me on other people's money was watching people get their butt kicked because they didn't have a good risk management strategy in place. Oh. It taught me to just be a lot more conservative. You know, there's a, there's a saying in the stock market and stock trading that everybody's a genius in a bull market. You know, you could have done it for the last 12 years. You could have closed your eyes and said, I'm going to buy that and probably would have been successful. It probably would have gone up yeah. in some way, shape or form. Um, in the famous words of Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right. And so you always got to be planning on getting punched in the mouth. That's, yeah. that's your risk management strategy. And if you can build a plan and a system and a deal, and it still makes sense with your worst case scenario, then it's probably a good deal. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I work pretty closely with an investor. And one of the things that he always says is that most people's investments are dependent on the economy continually doing better. And he right. says, there's nobody that's preparing for a recession or preparing for a pandemic. So if you can be prepared for that, you're going to come out on top when everyone else is, you know, losing everything. Uh, you could be the one swooping in and buying properties and living your best life uh, during those periods. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you mentioned 2020 and it's, it's something that I think on a lot of people's minds, like they're seeing people run out and buy houses for, you know, way more money than they're worth. You're seeing people that are, you know, selling their houses to get extra money. They're selling properties of, you know, apartment, like there's just a lot of property flipping hands right now. Do you think that one, do you think 2020 is at all comparable to what you saw when you first got started in this world? Um, or do you think it's you know, just a smaller dip and, and not comparable at all? Um, that's a great question. Uh, multiple facets to the answer on that one. So I think that, um, again, it's just a good time for caution. Hmm. What's different this time is the federal government has stepped in to effectively try to mitigate the problem. And I say mitigate because they have not solved. They've only yeah. kicked the can down the road. So during 2008, they didn't really have these uh, quote unquote levers in place to really quickly jump in, mm -hmm. but they did roll out quantitative easing over the course of the last 12, 12 years. And now they just took the same amount of quantitative easing that they did over 12 years and effectively rolled it out in one year to try to mitigate the bleeding. Um, we're in a time similar to what we were in prior to 2008. Hmm. If you go back and you look at, everything that was happening in 2007, you know, all the pundits, right? The guys that are all on the financial uh, TV shows who don't really have any skin in the game, who aren't professional investors, they're all out there saying, this will never end, you're ridiculous. There's a great highlight reel from Peter Schiff getting laughed off of, you know, every single major channel saying the market will never crash and look at how, you know, wonderfully valued everything is and yada, yada, yada. And then a year later, you know, he was, Right. It's called Peter Schiff was right. So you want to go watch it. Um, so that's where we're at. Uh, when the other shoe drops, I don't know. Um, I'm concerned about cataclysmic events. I'm concerned about wars, uh, acts of terrorism, 
uh, natural disasters, like those types of things that the government literally can't do anything to step in and fix because fear sets in. And when a market collapses, that's really what it's driven by is fear. Right. And so you just got to be prepared for that. You know, can you withstand the storm, which is why I like bigger, larger apartment complexes over, say, like single family homes, because you get scale. If I have 100, 200, 300, 400 doors, I have a lot more wiggle room than the guy who just has one one house. Right. Talk to me a little bit about the economies of scale, because that's something that I think goes over people's heads. Like I, I saw there was a, there was a TikTok over that same thing, you know, don't buy smaller properties, buy properties that are larger because you have the economies of scale and people in the comments just going crazy going like, you know, oh, well, you know, more bathrooms, more plumbing issues, more, you know, talking about all these issues that come with larger properties. Can you explain a little bit why people should consider multifamily investments, larger investments like that, uh, who are looking for more secure places to, to put their money? Yeah, in simple terms, if I have you know one door, one house, and the tenant leaves, I am 100% vacant. So beyond just the, the economy, your second biggest risk in real estate is vacancy. And so if I have 100 units, I can effectively withstand 20% vacancy, whether it's physical, meaning 20 empty units, or it's economical, meaning I've turned the dial across 100 units to reduce the rent to make it more viable for everybody. Or maybe some people are paying more than others. So I just have a, a lot more levers and dials to turn. Uh, on the opposite side of that, yes, there's, there's more problems. Um, part of the issue is the mindset is people think about real estate, and I don't know why this is as it's just a side hustle, right? If you're gonna start any other business in the world, you wouldn't just think of it like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna go dabble in a, I don't know, a roofing business, a contracting company. Nobody dabbles, right? But that's how they think about real estate. And that's why you hear this stuff like, well, Eric, do you really wanna be fixing toilets at 2 a.m.? Yeah. It's like, well, no, what you, what you are is a bad business owner. The reason you're fixing a toilet at 2 a.m. is because you didn't do any proactive maintenance on your property. You didn't do good vetting of your tenants. You aren't doing the things necessary in order to maintain your property so that you don't have to fix a toilet at 2 a.m. Right? Yeah. Proactive management of, of your real estate, of your business. You know, So as people, everybody likes the appeal of real estate because it's attractive, right? I can get cash flow, appreciation, loan pay down, and all the tax benefits. What if you could get all those things, get all the benefits of owning real estate, but have to take on none of the brain damage? What if you could effectively be a direct owner and limited partner, but get all the benefits of owning the real estate and let somebody else who's a professional, who's a nut like me, who likes that part of it, right? Yeah. To just go and do it. Wouldn't you do that in a, in a bigger, more stable asset class than say like a single family home where you sure. don't have to come up with all the money. There's multiple people all coming together. Would you do that? Most of the time I ask people that question, they go, well, yeah, of course I would do that. I'm a great attorney. I'm a great doctor. I'm a great entrepreneur in this vein over here, why not just give money to you? And at a certain point, you make too much money, too more than you can effectively deploy into things that you have good knowledge about. And so if you want to get diversified and go horizontal, so you have multiple streams of income, then you need to find other really smart people to deploy capital with. Right. R realistically, what point do you think someone's ready to start investing? You know, because that's the other thing too, is there are people who are you know, they've been saving for a long time, or maybe they've been, you know, pooling money to make an investment. And they look at this, what feels like a super imposing world of multifamily investing, or they think I can buy a house like mine 
rent it out on, you know, an Airbnb or something like that. And maybe I can afford to do that. Uh, at what point do you recommend somebody one invest in property and two, you know, how realistic is it for somebody to invest in say multifamily as one of their first investments? You know, for a really long time, real estate, uh, at least on the syndicated world was, was limited to accredited investors. And for those who don't know what that is, it means you make $200,000 or more per year or $300,000 as a household and or you have a, over a million dollars in net worth. And uh, traditionally that's been the case, right? Is like, that's how you, you at that point be qualified to invest. Uh, that said, last year, it's been around for a few years, but regulation crowdfunding has been out for a long time. They just kind of like opened up the ruling on that to allow more people access to these alternative assets and alternative investments. And so that's really changing the game to where uh, people who basically they can qualify you one of two ways. They can say, hey, I can take the higher of your income, 10% of your income or your net worth. So maybe you have a $900,000 net worth and you make $50,000, you could invest $90,000 into this deal. For a really long time, you just didn't even have access to it because like, accredited or not, you know, black and white. But there's other companies that are popping up like Realty Shares, um, Fundrise, et cetera, that allow you to do more fractional ownership, even smaller fractions. Um, for a long time as a syndicator, it didn't make sense to go like nickel and dime, right? Like get 300 people to all give you $10,000. Like that's a lot of brain damage on our part. And it's not great for them at that point. Yeah. No, I mean, in, in, in real terms, it is like, you know, you can get, you know, anywhere from let's call it 12 to 18% per year annualized return. I mean, that's pretty dang good return on your money, better than sitting in cash. But, you know, in like actual monetary terms, you know, when you're getting 700 bucks a year cash flow, you're like, oh, this isn't that great, you know? So you can definitely always make more money by being the active investor, like doing it yourself. And that's why you'll hear me say, you know, there's a million ways to make a million bucks in real estate. This is just the way that I like to do it. The people yeah. who tend to be a good fit, they're already crushing it in their business or their career. They're guys like you who have successful businesses going on. And they're like, want real estate, want exposure, not really my lane, but yeah. Samson's a guy that I know so I can place capital with him and go do it. Right, right. I, I definitely want to pivot the conversation to networking in just a minute, but I am curious about this as well, because like anything, you know, as it as more and more players come into a different field, you know, there are people who maybe don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, people that are offering, you know, these massive deals are offering great returns on these investments. They're pumping the numbers up to get people to put cash in. Uh, what are some red flags that people can look for when they're evaluating whether or not to invest with somebody uh, that, you know, maybe they wouldn't think to look for because real estate's not their thing. You know, what are some of those things you'd, you'd recommend to look out for? That's a great question. So one of the things that gets really touted and overused in real estate investing is internal rate of return, IRR. And so for people who don't know what that is, it's just a really fancy way of saying, how quickly will I get back my initial invested capital plus my return, right? What's the mm -hmm. compounded annual return of my money? So generally on something we're doing where we're taking an apartment and we're repositioning it, we're not you know, doing a development project or something like that you know, you can expect somewhere in the 12 to 15% internal rate of return. That said, time is a really big factor in determining the internal rate of return. So if I go into my pro forma, I can tweak the numbers and make the internal rate of return look super sexy by simply shortening the timeline. Yeah. Okay, you put this return in and in two years, I'm going to give you your money back. Internal rate of return can jump up exponentially. 
Um, most of the time, it's important to understand well, what's the business plan and the thesis and what's reasonable to actually execute on this business plan in order to actually get those returns. So I just want to make sure that you understand the underlying um, reasoning behind the return numbers and the business plan in order to get there. Anybody who's making egregious claims, who is uh, not cautioning you as an investor to say, hey, you know, if you're looking for really high returns, like this isn't a good investment for you. If you're looking for safe and consistent, then this is a good investment for you. You know, th those are differentiating factors in real estate. Real estate's slow. It's not fast. Don't expect to get your money back quick. You know, none of those things are a reality. Are there times when you'll knock it out of the park? Yeah, for sure. But plan for the worst, prepare for the best. It's also important to just know who the players are on the team. So when I was first getting into it, you know, I'm newer with not a ton of track record, right? I have really good partners who've, you know, been doing it for 40 years and have built, you know, 200, $300 million portfolios, right? Those right. guys are on my bench, right? So we're all responsible for being the general partners. And so you really want to know who the sponsorship group is that's actually going to be managing the asset because ultimately they're going to dictate whether or not the return profile is there. All, right. With all that being said, though, when you get to that level, to that scale, you also have large institutional banks who are giving you non-recourse debt, which is a really fancy way of saying nobody is personally responsible for the loan. Hmm. So you got to believe that if the lender is going to give that loan, that they feel very strongly about the asset itself and the sponsorship group. Right. Because they're saying if the world melts down, give us the keys and y'all can walk away. Right. The likelihood of that happening is very low because during 2008, the default rate on large commercial multifamily apartments was 0.04%. But, you know, just you got to understand the full dynamic. When people don't understand the entirety of the game, they get really uncertain and then they just don't do anything. Right. Right. Well, you mentioned the team and it, it kind of pushes me to the question we ask everybody that comes on the show. And that's, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important? And I'm really curious to hear your response to that. I think it's a combination of both. Um, one of my mentors said that uh, money does not flow to a good deal. It flows to knowledge. And so that fundamentally changed the way that I looked at it. Um, I have an immense amount of knowledge on commercial real estate, but there's some aspects that I'm not admittedly as good at, like uh, financial modeling. I, I can't. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like, like, like hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is 
The fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed. I'm really competent in there and I understand what's going on and I can get in the model, but I don't get geeked out like my partner does who literally does it for a profession. He's a commercial loan originator, right? So play to your strengths. He's not this guy. He's not going to get on the podcast and be the face of the brand and talk and communicate, be charismatic. He's a lot more analytical. So we really balance each other out. So it's a big part of, of what you know, but also who's on your team. And so what's been the relationship that's helped you the most in the trajectory of your business in learning, you know, everything about this, like what maybe, maybe one or two people that have been the biggest impact on you personally. Well, step one is just good mentorship. You know, when I was, there's like five ways you get into the business. You're born into it, right? You spend seven to 10 years working in the industry. You go bang your head against the wall. You find a mentor or you become a passive investor. So I'd already been investing for a while. I was not born into the industry. So I already had, you know, seven years under my belt. And then when I wanted to scale up and get into syndication and large commercial multifamily, I went and found who I thought were the best mentors, people who are already doing it, already crushing it and said, Hey, take my money, educate me on everything that I need to know. Um, so I would say that uh, Chad Doty and Dan Chamberlain with the 37 parallel group are just incredible humans, great guys built an incredible business and just in, integral in my growth. Right. Um, but then along that journey and, and being a part of that mastermind is where I met my two business partners, Jeremy Cisneros and Brad Penley. And so we were all going down this, you know, same course of kind of running our own paths. And we sunk up in a lot of ways and filled a lot of gaps in each other's skill set. And so why don't we just do this together? Right. Do you recommend, you know, the mastermind route for anybody who's getting into this for the first time? Um, Or do you have a, do you have any advice for somebody who is getting into this, who doesn't know anything about it, doesn't know anybody in that world. Uh, maybe they've identified a couple names through podcasts or things like that, but um, any way to contact those ideal mentors who are getting into the space? Um, I think you need to be careful. You know, there's a lot of people who are really good at selling courses and um, selling the idea of right. being in it. And then there's people who are actually like real practitioners of the business. That's what I was seeking out is I want people who are really uh, pragmatic in their experience and they, they're really doing it and they're living it. Um, so I would say that, you know, your very first step, if you've never done any real estate investing, it's probably a good idea to just kind of start small and execute on a, on a smaller deal, mm-hmm. whether by yourself, but once you kind of get over that hump and you work through some of the minutia of what it takes to get a real estate deal done, it's, it's the same thing when you get into large commercial multifamily, just at scale. So at that point, you're probably ready to start going and seeking, seeking mentors. And you're going to pay them one of two, two ways with your money or with your time. You know what I mean? So 
sometimes people come and they want mentorship from me and it's like, great, bring me some deals, right. Or mm. help, help, help us find some more money. Right. And we'll bring you in as a part of the, one of the partners on the deals. So yeah. I, yeah, to answer, I don't know if I really answered your question, but um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. Yeah, no, I think that is, I think that's super valuable. And, and like you said, it's paying one of two ways. Like, I, I think there's a lot of people um, that come in with a, Hey, let me buy you coffee and pick your brain. You know, there's those people, but from what I've heard consistently from people that do what you do and in regardless of field, whether we're talking real estate business, like being able to come in with some kind of value that you can bring to the table is going to get the attention of the person you want to connect with. And yeah. I, I think that's really, really good for people to hear because there are, there's, there's tons of people I think that overestimate what they know about real estate investing or overestimate what they understand about it. Yeah. Um, but then also too, I think, you know, underestimate, you know, what they could actually bring to the table to, you know, get the attention of somebody that could actually walk them through the process and kind of help them help them through the journey. Uh, I am kind of curious, way back at the beginning of the episode, you kind of mentioned that now's a time for caution um, due to the way things are right now. There's a lot of varied opinion about what's going to happen with the economy in the next year or so. Um, I think a lot is fairly pessimistic about what's going to happen. Um, when you say be cautious, uh, what would you say you mean by that? Like, what would you encourage people to do right now? Is it a, is it a time to hold? Is it a time to invest in and just make sure it's a really good deal. Like what's the, what's the pattern people should be holding right now? Uh, the answer is be judicious in your screening. So there's this really incredible part of the human condition called rosy retrospection, where we look at the past in a much better light than it probably ever was. And so if you mm -hmm. lived through 2008, like I did, even sometimes when I look back on it, it doesn't seem as bad as it actually was. Um, no. So when you have that in mind, and you start looking forward looking, and you no. want to be positive about the future. There's this other part of the human condition that's called confirmation bias that kicks in and you will convince yourself that it's a good deal, or you right. should do it. Um, I made an offer today on an apartment complex it's a smaller deal, 82 units. It's listed at nearly $5 million. And I offered $1.1 million below the asking price. Mm. Why would I do that? Well, I would do that because I know in that market what the market capitalization rate is. And when I compared the net operating income of that business with what they were wanting to sell it at, it said that they were trying to sell it at a 4.4 cap. Well, 4.4 cap is that's like something you would see in like downtown Denver, not Fayetteville, Arkansas, where there's 520,000 people. And even if you convinced me that the population was going to grow 10% per year, that's 5,200 people a year. I mean, that's not even significant enough growth to justify that because then at that point, I'm taking on all the risk and I'm yeah. betting on the come that the market's just going to just accelerate exponentially and somehow five to seven years from now, I'm going to be able to sell that asset at a better cap rate than what the current market is. So that's what happens in real estate. And it's different when you're playing with a billion dollars. If you're a large right. institutional investor and you have a billion dollars to deploy, like, what do you care? You're more focused on, I have to deploy capital. I need capital preservation and I need yield. Yeah. Denver's a great market. Yeah, I'll pay two and a half cap for this because I have a lot of faith that Denver's going to keep growing, keep going. And even if not, if I sell it in five to seven years, 
I will have paid down the loan and got my investors some return. Right. Much different strategy than going into a more tertiary or secondary or market where cash flow and yield is primarily what your focus is. So there's right. caution, judicious, screen, and always offer what, what it's actually worth, yeah. not what you think will get the deal done. You know, right, right, and I guess the advice is if it's a good deal, it's a good deal. You know, so right. you got to look at it case by case. Uh, have you noticed from from what you've seen? Have you noticed that a lot of people are paying for properties well over what they're what they're worth? Are you losing a lot of these deals due to people offering a million more than what's worth, or two million more, you know, even more <laughs> than what it's worth? Yeah, one of the things that we're really focused on right now is uh, this we're calling the VE ratio. So valuation of real estate versus the actual earned income in that area, the wage growth. Right. The markets that concern us are the ones that are really overstretched, the Denver's, the Austin's, the Texas markets where valuations have just gone up incredibly, extremely high, but the wage growth hasn't really no. kept up with it. Um, so yeah, we're seeing that. We're seeing people pay a premium. I unfortunately don't have the the, we'll call it the stamina or the, the asset protection by having just a massive portfolio to say, oh, you know, that one shit the bed, no big deal. You know what I mean? Right. So we're a lot more careful in how we approach it. Um, but yeah, it's happening at every level. It's a seller's market. Uh, we lost on a deal recently. We lost on it twice. <laughs> we, we literally got up to 17 million. They went with another group that, that took 17.2 that group couldn't close because they couldn't get qualified for the loan. They mm. came back to us and said, Hey, can you get up to 17.2? We said, we're to give you our best and final offer. Now yeah. you guys are just being greedy. You, you didn't invite us to the party the first time. And now you're inviting us and asking us to bring drinks. Like that's not going right, to work for us. Right. So then they just skipped over us and went to the third group who clearly had a lower offer than we did. And that group somehow got up to 17.2 and now they're moving forward with that group and not with us. Jeez. So, you know, it's, it's okay. If you're doing it right, you should be making, you should be uh, screening a lot of deals, which screening is different than underwriting. Screening and saying doesn't fit my criteria. You should be underwriting like 10% of those deals and then offering on 10% of those deals. And of the ones that you offer on, like 10% of those are actually gonna make it to the sure. final round. So you might make 500 offers or 500, 500 deals and make 50 offers before you actually get something done. Right. And that requires systems and strategy, networking. We have 350 brokers that we yeah. work with on an ongoing basis and all the markets that we're targeting. It just takes a lot of cycles and effort to get that stuff done. Sure, sure. Well, before we move to the the final round, I want to ask this question partly because I've I've struggled to understand it, and so it's a it's a selfish question for me. Uh, but one of the things that's been really interesting to me, and I'm not a real estate person whatsoever, so it's probably an easy answer. Uh, but over the last you know year and a half or so, I've seen this. I've seen you know whether we're talking residential, whether we're talking multifamily. I keep hearing people are you know it's a seller's market. People are spending way, way too much money on properties, whether it's their house or whether there's somebody that sold their house and is psyched because they made 200 grand more than they thought they'd ever make, you know, selling their house. Uh, why is everything going so well for sellers right now? Why are prices going up so high right now when income has dropped down for so many people? Like, it seems like a weird time for a lot of people to be rushing out, spending a lot of money. Um, why is that happening right now? And do you think that's going to, that's going to curb really quick, uh, given that things are opening back up? 
Well, there's a lot of money out there right now. I think one of the things that's different this this go around in real estate versus last time is in 2008, people were taking out a ton of equity on their houses and they were levered up to the gills. And then when the, when the valuation of properties fell, they were upside down. They had more debt on the property than they could actually sell their house for. That didn't really happen this go around given COVID, but interest rates have remained incredibly suppressed fictitiously by the government right, in an attempt to keep inflation concerns, keep inflation somewhat going, but also just control the market, right? Because if, if rates start to go up and people flood into bonds, stock market falls, that's kind of the indicator that they use to determine the strength of the economy. So money is really cheap right now. Like I can, you should hear these residential mortgage brokers like, oh, you can get so much house right now for you know, for your money and you only need to put three and a half percent down, you know, and I know you're paying a premium on it, but just think about if things keep going like this in the next five years, like you would have closed that extra 50 grand you paid on your room. So it, it's a seller's market because money is cheap and there's lots of money available. And, and as, as inflation kicks in and the, and the prices of things start to go up, the value of dollars starts to go down. So everybody's chasing assets. They're chasing yield. They're chasing ownership of some sort of real estate asset. And the, the byproduct of that is the sellers control it, right? I think if everybody wants it and there's yeah. not enough inventory on the market, like who's charge whatever you want, yeah. charge whatever you want. So we see this a lot in multifamily where they'll put out the price for an apartment complex and it'll just say market. Hmm. What does that mean? It means whatever anybody's willing to pay for it. Right. Now you can get an idea, right? We have data that tells us like what stuff's been selling for price per door and you can kind of value it based off of that. But man, we've lost out on so many deals because somebody's just willing to pay more than we are, you know? Yeah, but it's okay because you're going for safe and secure investment versus just buying it. <laughs> just yeah. getting, you don't want to just win. Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, I want to move us here into our final part of the show. Uh, this is our random round. So I'm going to ask you some quick uh, random questions and get some quick answers from you. Uh, first off, what profession other than your own do you think it'd be fun to attempt? So I saw this question before you sent it. And uh, I thought a lot about that because I feel like I'm doing the thing um, that I've wanted to do for a really long time. So, you know, it's been kind of building up. But I think it would be super sweet to be like a travel content creator where your, yeah. your profession was just to travel and curate content and show people the world so they could live vicariously through that and develop sponsorship and a YouTube channel and all that cool stuff. Yeah. No, I found out, uh, it was like a year or two after, or it was, or it was, probably, it was probably a couple of years ago. And I saw, uh, someone was hiring, I come from a video background and someone was hiring a videographer to travel with their like this very wealthy family and just shoot content of their vacations all over the world. And, I, and so, someone tagged me and I was like, if I had seen this before getting married and having a kid, I would have been all over this. That looks so cool. Uh, but I, I don't think my wife would be happy if I was gone for nine months out of the year uh, traveling you know without her. <laughs> I got about, I got about nine, 10, 10 more years or so before my kiddos are probably off to college because we started having kids in about 27. Yeah. And so I tell my wife all the time, I'm like, we're still going to go do that. Like when yeah. the girls are gone, we're just going to travel, create content. And we'll turn a business out of it. You got to do it. Yeah. Uh, would you ever, oh, well, I'll ask this really quick. Would you ever invest outside of the country? Have you thought I, about it? I have thought about it. Uh, it's just complex. Yeah. Um, something that I have to go get really educated on. 
Gotcha. Um, I think, you know, it's probably a little bit easier to do something like that in like Mexico, but um, I've looked in, in uh, Puerto Rico, which is, you know, technically a territory yeah. of the United States, but there's some pretty good tax benefits to go along with investing right. in Puerto Rico. I've looked at, you know, would it be cool to get a little villa in some random Italian town or something like that, you know, but yeah, I just got to get real familiar with it and I'm not educated on it right now at all. Gotcha. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? It'd be my wife. She's my best friend. And uh, we spend a lot of times, you know, as you get married, we've been married for 12 years together for 16. Dating is incredibly important. And so we've, you know, the life that we've been able to build together was things that we talked about when we were 20 and broke. Hmm. And here we are. So a lot of it's just visualizing and, and planning and preparing for the future and, you know, she always has some good wisdom to impart on me. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't know if it's a guy thing or what, but I'm just, sometimes I'm just like, let's go, you know, burn the boats. Let's go. Yeah. She's like, eh, pump the brakes. Think about right. this. Yeah. How do you like to learn best? Is it books, blogs, podcasts, videos? What's your, what's your favorite way to learn? Uh, I'm a very visual learner. Uh, so I do really good with video. Um, I think this is maybe innate to athletes. They kind of got to see it and then they got to go do it. So yeah. I learned really well by just kind of immersing myself in it and beating my head against the wall. Um, yeah. Right. There's like a, a feel to a lot of things. So if it's like a selling technique, a pitching technique, a networking technique, I'll study on it and then I'll go and just go implement it next year. Got it. Got it. Give me a glimpse of your morning routine. So I'm an early bird, played football for a lot of years, you know, in high school, I had you know morning lift at like 5.00 AM. So, you know, I've been getting up early and getting after it very early. So sleeping past like 5.30 is pretty rare for me. Maybe on the weekend I'll, I'll sleep late, but between 4.30 and 5, I get up. I usually slam a pre-workout shake, get kind of juiced up, hit the gym for about an hour. I also own a really awesome strength and conditioning facility hmm. here in Northern Colorado. So we got like 7,000 square feet of just sweet lifting equipment. So I go work out for a while in the morning, get a little cardio, and then I, you know, I come back and get after it after I've had breakfast and whatnot. On uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, though, I do take my daughter to swim practice. She's nine. She's found her passion for swimming. So we get up and do our little morning routine together, drop her off, and then she hits it, and I go to the gym. So it's the one day that's probably different. Awesome. Uh, what's your go-to pump-up song? What are you lifting to? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have one. So I grew up, you know, on a lot of punk rock music and battle and hardcore. I like all music. I mean, if you're catching me listening to music, I'm across the spectrum from I'm listening to Bach and then all of a sudden the yoga music comes on and then all of a sudden the deathcore music comes on behind that followed by like Notorious B.I.G. Nice. But if I had to choose the kind of music that probably gets me the most hype, it would be like hardcore, metalcore, deathcore kind of music. And that's just because I've always been the angry white dude that played football. So it's just, <laughs> you know, I got tattoos and stuff. It's a part of who I am. You got to go for it. You got to go for the cliche a little bit. <laughs> um, what's something you're not very good at? I'm not very good at art. Hmm. I can play music and I'm pretty like musically inclined, but don't ask me to draw anything. My brain goes haywire when that hmm. happens. My wife on the other hand, she's got the skills. Do you have any creative side really to you or is it, is it more at the number side hundred percent? No, I mean, I think business entrepreneurship, branding and marketing spent a lot of my career in that world, you know? Mm -hmm. So the idea of just like bringing a concept and a vision and turning it into something that people can 
believe in and buy into is something that I'm very, very good at. I probably would have been a really good ad guy. Okay. Um, like a pitch man. Um, but I used to play a lot of guitar, as you can see when I was a kid. Um, man, I'm a little rusty these days, but I sing in a choir when I was younger. Um, hmm. So musically artistic, musically yeah. inclined. Gotcha. Well, the last question I'll kind of give in two parts. One, where's the best place for people to connect with you personally online? Uh, and then where is the best place for people to connect with your company uh, and find out more about the investing side of all of these different properties, everything you have going on right now? Yeah. These days I really spend a lot of time on Instagram and LinkedIn. Those are the two top I've been on TikTok and Facebook and all that other stuff, but man, it's overwhelming at a certain point. Um, so I kind of stay in my lane. LinkedIn's obviously great for my profession. Unbelievable networking that goes on there. And then uh, people want to learn more about how to invest or just more about what we're doing in general with apartment complexes. They can head over to the growth That's the growth And we got a bunch of good content over there, videos, white papers, blogs, um, things to just educate you on the world of multifamily investing. Perfect. Well, definitely, if you're listening, be sure to check out all those links in the show notes. And Samson, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. You bet, Eric. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.